Hey, it's uh, March, March the 12th, 2006, and we're discussing uh, Lesson 18 in uh, Epistle to the Hebrews. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you are a loving and a uh, truthful God, that you have uh, preserved for us an accurate account of what you have done on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for this writer of this book who uh, prepared for us uh, good instructions and good uh, exhortation. Father, we ask that as, as we read it, we may understand it as you intend it to be understood and that your spirit might be active as it tells us what it is that you want told. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Bless Adonai who is blessed. Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. All right, we're looking at the New Covenant today, or this evening, having done lots of homework. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. Deuteronomy 30 verses 5 through 8, which is one of the passages that uh, we looked up as well. This is a promise of the new covenant found within the Torah. It doesn't call it the new covenant, does it? But we're going to see that it is, in fact, the same thing. The tabernacle imagery we saw uh, last week, and we've actually been looking at for several weeks, in Hebrews 9, is being used to point to the relationship between the visible and the invisible. We saw that the discussion which started in chapter 8 and continues on into chapter 10 is actually a discussion on the New Covenant. And it's used these imagery, the imagery of the tabernacle to make, a, a, in essence, a drosh, or a midrash upon... Uh, the new covenant and its relationship to the first or what is also called the old covenant and Yeshua being the mediator of this new covenant uh, is one of the points that the, uh, the writer is trying to make um, he's also trying to teach us, teach us what it is that first and second means and what old and new means which is why he used that's why we went, spent all that time looking at the tabernacle we did it out of order because we needed to understand what does he mean by first and second or first and new, right? Are they equal? And as we saw, and as we will see, they are. Both the visible and the invisible comprise reality. We are not Greeks. We do not believe that reality is spiritual only. We are not Epicureans who believe that the physical is, is reality only. 
we are Bible believers who believe that the reality is comprised with both the seen and the unseen. The unseen, without a doubt, has a higher value, as it were, at times. Uh, but one could say, one would not say that simply because something's unseen, it's better. Certainly, our enemy is unseen. He is not better. Regardless, the seen and the unseen are not exclusive of each other. The invisible is enclosed within the visible. When you look at me, you see my body. It is part of me. It is not all of me. My, uh, my will, my emotions, my, my intellect, the things that I uh, desire are not visible. And yet they are real. They're expressed physically. Why this is difficult for people to understand is beyond me because it is something we live with every day. We want better explanations, unfortunately. Since the tabernacle is being used as a homiletic, in a homiletic way, in other words, it's being used as a picture, a figure, in a homiletic way to understand the reality of seen and unseen, it is important to explore the same method of looking at the Old and New Covenant. Now, Old, I put in quotes there, and it calls it that, but we're going to see why it calls it that here in a moment. I've chosen to use more often the, the, ver, the, ver, the word first, since that's what it talks about, the first and the second in chapter 9, talking about the tabernacle, since that's the, that's the way that it's trying to teach us something about the Old and the New Covenant. First of all, the Torah is not a covenant. There's a, there, is a, there is a passage in chapter uh, 3 of second, or chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, where it's, Paul speaks of those who read the Old Covenant, um, uh, their hearts are darkened when they, don't, when they don't see Messiah within it. And yet when they turn to the Lord, their, their, their hearts are illuminated and they see Him as looking into a mirror. Um, they behold His glory. Um, obviously, we would, we would acknowledge those are people who don't, do not know Messiah. There, it could also be argued that there is something very similar at work in people who claim they know him and yet deny that, that the pages that precede Mal, uh, Ma, uh, Matthew 1.1 1, 1 have any validity in their life at all. Uh, because obviously, they don't see him there either. Um, but what we need to understand is that one, that one verse in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3... Is, the, is probably the basis for more misunderstanding on this issue than anything else with that regard. Because from it, we have whole sections of our Bible named Old Testament, New Testament. What's a testament? Yes. And however, how is it? Are, they, are, those, are there two different words for covenant and testament in the Greek scriptures? No, it's the same word. Hence, Old Testament becomes Old Covenant, right? New Testament becomes New Covenant. That's dangerous theology, at best. Um, at best, it's dangerous theology. What it has done, in fact, is it's actually led people to make very, very dangerous theological conclusions that have affected, uh, affected more than simply their, their doctrine. Namas in chapter seven, Hebrews chapter seven, verse two. Go to Hebrews seven two. I'm going to read in the New King James. If you'd like, you can look it up in your um, in your workbook. 
in the Hebrew names version. Hebrews 7.12, excuse me, says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also change of the law. Namas. Well, it's not fair... We're going to see, as you've seen in your homework, and as we're going to see in the discussion here, it's not fair that every time you see the word law in the apostolic scriptures, the quote New Testament, that you automatically say Torah because it's not it's not right. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. The only way you know is by context. Here, it does not mean a change in the Torah. Well, how's that possible? You see, here here goes again. If it's a if it's a new covenant, old covenant, as as some describe it, the old testament's the old covenant, the new testament's the new covenant. Then a change in law means okay, we we flip the page. You know, flip that page between Malachi and, and Matthew, and now you got a new one here. Here's your new Bible. Okay, that's absurd. Well, first of all, the apostolic writers would have choked at the thought. Why did they keep quoting from the Tanakh? <laughs> You know, a third of the a third of the apostolic scriptures is a quote. The apostolic scriptures do not stand authoritatively on their own, and they never intend to. They are authoritatively a explanation of what was written before, and that's what they claim. They claim no less and no more. They're inspired without question, and yet. Their authority comes from what they quote and the conclusions that they make inspired by the Holy Spirit on the basis of it. So it's not speaking... Here it's not speaking of a law or a Torah that makes people priests. No. Here it's speaking in chapter 7, verse 12. There's a change in the rule. When there's a change in the priest... How do you have, an, how do you have a priesthood other than... We talked about this previously. How do you have a priesthood other than Melchizedek? Or other than Aaron, rather? You have to have a new rule. Well, there's a different rule. That's the point. There's a different rule. What rule is it? It's the rule of how those under the priesthood of Melchizedek become priests. And as it were, Yeshua being the only high priest, right? So it's a different rule. Nothing more and nothing less. And that's all that it means. Romans 11, uh, 3.11. I gave you a whole bunch of passages to look up. You're supposed to kind of tr- try and decide by the context. I was, really, I was really mean and gave you chapter 7, which had like 19 references to Namas. <laughs> Um, but uh, in Romans 11, uh, 3.11, which, is this Torah or is this simply a rule or a, or a legal or a law uh, statement? Is it a man-made rule or what? Look at the, uh, Romans 11, uh, 3.11 says, that's not the right, that's not the right one. Thank you. Is it the uh, it's uh, no, it's actually one of the ones we looked up here. Hold on, hold on, go back, go back, go back. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. It's Romans three thirty one. Ah, I left out the three there. Okay, Romans three thirty one says, "Do we then make the law? Do we then do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not." On the contrary, we establish the law. What law is it speaking of? There's no, there's no law that it could be speaking of other than the Torah in this regard. Well, I find it very ironic how negative Paul speaks against the law, seemingly at various places, that he would make this point. Do we make void the law through faith? Excuse me. Get this and understand this. Paul, the apostle, is writing here and saying... The Torah and faith are complementary. They are not in conflict. 
There's no such thing as law versus grace. That is a lie. It is complementary. On the contrary, we establish the Torah through faith. Faith establishes the Torah. As we're going to see when we look at uh, a little bit further into this, there is a direct connection between faith and the Torah. Romans 7. Now, no, we're not going to go through all these, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Look at Romans 7, 1, though. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. I would, I would assume that means Torah. Those who, those who know the Torah, or maybe not. That the Torah, or the law, which one? has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And then it goes on to describe how a woman, if she's, if, she's, if she's married, she's bound to her husband under the law until he dies. And isn't it a good thing that you've died to the law? Well, okay. That's confusing after what he just told me that we established the Torah through faith. But go to the end. This long discussion of, uh, of, of, of the law in chapter 7 of Romans. Go to uh, verse 18. Uh, verse 17 but now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for it will to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I do not find for the good that I will do I do not do and the evil I will not do that I practice now if I do what I will not do it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me I find then a law a law I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. In other words, you're speaking of a principle, right? It's a principle. I find, a, I, have, I find this principle. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. So inside, he delights in the Torah, right? I delight in the Torah. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin of which of my members. Now, if you remember back in early in chapter 7, he's talking about being bound to a law and that you're freed by death, right? You're freed by death from this law. Which law is he speaking of? Because here he's speaking of, I'm being bound, I'm held captive by a law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I have been made dead to the law, he says. I have been made dead to the law in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Messiah, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. What, what have I died to? The law of sin and death. <laughs> through Messiah, I've died to the law of sin and death. So I could be married to what? The law of God. That's exactly his point. All the way through this whole chapter. Is he a believer or is he not a believer? You know, the whole argument is like, it's like silliness when you look at it from this perspective. It's not, in other words, the point is, throughout this passage, the word namas is flipping back and forth between a good law, God's law, and a bad law. The law of sin and death. How do you know which one is he speaking of? Sometimes it's hard to figure out. It really is. You've got to get the whole argument. Context is very important. James 4, 11. I love this one explained to me uh, by a brother one time was telling me that wow, I'm under a new law. I'm under a new law. Hebrews, Hebrews uh, uh, 8, uh, or Hebrews, uh, yeah, Hebrews uh, 7.13 tells me I'm under a new law now. Uh, just because 
just like the Levites. There was a, there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in law. I'm under a new law now. Now I'm under the law of liberty. Okay, let's look at the law of liberty. Uh, and and uh, James does it uh, several places, but here, uh, here in chapter 4, he, he describes it uh, in 4.11. Do not speak evil of another brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges a brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Which is the good one? A judge of the law or a doer of the law? Which law is it? And yes, it is the perfect law of liberty. But the perfect law of liberty is the law that sets me free. <laughs> and it is the law of God. And it's the Torah. So what is he speaking of? If you're not a, Which is good? A judge of the Torah or a doer of the Torah? Which of the two is good? A doer of the Torah. So a judge of the Torah is bad. Everybody agree? A judge of the Torah is bad. How does one judge the Torah? He speaks evil of one another. To speak evil of one another. How is that a judge of the Torah? Well, if you speak evil of someone when we're specifically told not to, then aren't you putting yourself above the law? Exactly. And what you're saying is you're saying, no, no, that one doesn't apply to me. Right, but better than the guy who wrote it. Ah, uh, yes. And so, or, 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 quite honestly, no, that part's now no longer in effect. That was then. Yes, that was then. This is now. In other words, to be a judge of the Torah is someone who starts doing this, the cut and paste. Doesn't apply. Uh, let me cut that out. Doesn't apply. Doesn't Jew only. Gentiles, uh, maybe, right? That, that's a judge of the law. You're being a judge as opposed to a doer. What's a doer do? Oh, uh, well, any better. This better do it. <laughs> you know, okay, it's kind of a brain dead appearance to it. You know, it's like, well, you know. You don't understand why. <laughs> like a cooking. But that's what people would do. They go, well, you're just like a robot. You just do whatever it says, right? Yeah. It's not hard. It really isn't. It's really actually really much easier if you don't have to decide. You make one decision and that's it. <laughs> you don't have to make many middle little decisions and you don't have to change every day. Well, that was yesterday. I don't, I don't know if that really applies to me today. <laughs> of course they don't. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. What are Yeshua's own words? He, what he uses is he connects... We know he's speaking of Torah because he says the Torah, the law, and the prophets. I did not come to abolish or to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Right? What is it to and what is it to abolish? To destroy, to make it to make it lie down, to not let it not let it be evident, to not be able to see its glory. Do not think, I do not think, if you think, it, if you think this, shame on you is what he's saying. Do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. By saying law of prophets, we know he's talking Torah right there. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the Torah until all is fulfilled. Fulfilled, by the way, does not mean the same thing as abolished or annulled. It can't. It can't. He just said it didn't. Hello, English tells us. We don't even have to know the Greek words behind this, but English tells us what this means. Why it's ignored, I don't know. I had another dear brother, different one, tell me that, well, the reasons why this applied then was it was a couple years before the cross, quote, unquote. Therefore, whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments, which ones? The least of them, whichever ones they are. Uh, pick some. 
You know? <laughs> the least in it, that's what he goes on to say, the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The focus, just as James is, do them. Right? Do them and teach them, which is what he says in Matthew chapter 28. Teach them. One of our favorite questions for folks that, that drill on that one is, if, he, if we agree with you, he didn't come to abolish, he came to fulfill it. And they agree with us. See, I don't have to do it now because Jesus fulfilled it. <laughs> so our question then is, well, how would your life be different if you did abolish it? And they, they go apoplectic. They just, there's no difference in their life. If Jesus truly had abolished the law instead of becoming it, their life would be exactly the same as it is right now. That's true. Because they have no... Yeah, another one you can do is you can go to you can go to Matthew chapter three. I think it's verse eleven. Three. No, it's not. It is. Uh, it is. Um, yeah, no, it's verse fifteen. Three fifteen. Yeshua answered and said to him, speaking to John the Baptist, "Permit it now." Permit it be so now, for thus is fitting for all to for, to fulfill. Same word in the Greek to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Yeshua got baptized, so you don't have to. That's what he's speaking of. He's <laughs> baptized immersion, immersion. So Yeshua got immersed, so you don't have to. He fulfilled it. There, there you go. No more, no more do you have to get immersed because Yeshua. No, no. Instead, what we learn is the opposite. The word fulfill means imitate. It's not a replacement. It's a manifestation, right? He manifests it. He is the living Torah. You want to know what Torah means? Look at him. You want to know how it applies to your life today? Look at him. How did he live? How he lived in perfection is our goal. Not that we can ascribe the living righteously uh, with, you know, in this body. The point is, though, we're supposed to imitate him. He's our master. 2 Peter 3.15 this is, a, this is a really important one in understanding this idea of Old Covenant, New Covenant believe it or not Second uh, Peter we, we, we hear all sorts of bad bad press against Paul mostly by people in the Torah movement Messianics they don't like Paul because they don't like things some people don't like Paul because they don't like some of the things that Paul says or appears to say sadly enough they're not they're not giving they're, they're believing they're believing Paul's critics instead of believing what Paul says or trying to discover how it is that Paul the consummate Jewish rabbi could possibly claim at the end of Acts to have been faithful to the customs of our people and yet still say the things that they say he said well here Peter tells us and he explains it so we know real clear Peter 3.15 And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him has written to you as also in his epistles, speaking in them these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of scriptures. If you have a difficulty understanding the, the, the Tanakh, or what people call the Old Testament, you will twist Paul. If you don't understand the Tanakh, you will twist Paul. People who think, like Marcion, which is exactly why Marcion did it, that you can take Paul's words and throw the, quote, Old Testament away, you're going to have a perverted religion. And that's what he had. 
a perverted religion. Paul must be understood in the context of the Tanakh or he will be perverted. He, Paul doesn't speak by himself. He quotes again and again and again. His only authority that he ever claims was not even by revelation. The authority that he claims is the authority of Scripture. He claims his authority is coming from God and he claims it using Scripture. Okay? Even his claim to be an to a, a apostle to the Gentiles must be affirmed in his mind by the council in Jerusalem. He never claims to just take off on his own. God told me, so y'all better shut up and listen. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. I have a question. How does Leviticus 11 offer doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness to the majority of Christianity? Leviticus 11, of course, is the chapter which tells us that we are sanctified, that is, set apart, by what we eat. How does that offer any doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness? Just Just as you said, Joseph. How would your life be different? If you never had if 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 you never had Leviticus eleven, how would your life be different? What does it offer you? It doesn't. And the real answer, of course, is why is because they don't think it applies to them. Hebrews eight thirteen. Is this obsolete? We touched on this last week, and the reason why I, I gave you a heads up is because I didn't think I did an adequate job in the homework, and so I wanted you to, at least approaching it, have yourself ready for this question. Hebrews 8.13 says, In that he says, a new covenant. This is after he quotes from Jeremiah 31. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The first being what? Some would call the old as well, right? The first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now to be fair, some people have treated chapter 8 of Hebrews a little bit differently than I have in in looking at this they have tried to make the discussion between the first priesthood and the second priesthood I know that in some things that I've read that's that's one of the what's one of the focuses that it doesn't say covenant the word covenant is often often added into the text it just says first and new Um, so possibly talking about priesthood I do not believe that because it does use the word covenant both in chapter 8 that's the topic and continues the topic on into chapter 10 the topic is covenant and I believe that trying to make a priesthood is simply solving a problem, creating a new one. Because the priesthood of Yeshua is not a replacement for the priesthood of Aaron. Where will so, the priesthood of Aaron end? That's right. It's eternal. A promise is a promise. Hey, the very Torah says that he will be a priest also for eternally. His, his order would be a priest exactly. eternally. So it, we only create another problem by making a priesthood, I believe. So, let's focus upon chapter 8, verse 13, because I think in this we can see the point that he's trying to make in chapter 9. It's actually right there in chapter uh, 8, verse 13. If these words, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old? If those are in the present tense, that means they haven't yet become obsolete. And they haven't yet grown old, right? When this was being written. When was this written? 
Likely 30 years. 30, 40 years after the resurrection. So if that was the, if the resurrection was a break point, remember my friend that said, no, no, that was before the cross. Well, you got a problem here in Hebrews 8. <laughs> because apparently the first covenant was still oper- operable then. Okay, it was about to keel over and die, but it was still operable. You know, there ought to be a break point where this one is valid and this one is now valid, right? There ought to be a clean break. In other words, the old covenant worked until right now. Okay, now it's a new covenant. Anybody before that moment, sorry, you're out of luck. Anybody after that moment, you have a new covenant. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. That's the argument. I'm not saying that's what it is. Right? This is dispensational theology I'm giving you. Right? It's like in, at, a, at a knife's edge, in a moment, somehow, somewhere, at a moment, we went from old to new. And this is the verse that they quote. It's obsolete. It's been replaced. There's a new covenant that's replaced it. Well, you've got a problem with the Greek here then, because it's present tense. Well, they actually have more problems than that. But the present tense makes us sit up and go, wait a minute. But you know what the other one goes. This is actually a little bit more nefarious. It's when the temple was destroyed. Yeah, we finally got them. That's it. Take their temple away. That's, that's replacement theology does that one. Now, now we have problems with the end of the sequel. Oh no, the temple comes back and so does the law. Oh, we're going to all have to be bound to the law again. I'm being facetious there. But yeah, you can't exactly tie it to the creation and destruction of the You can't tell by audio. <laughs> Is it old? No. Is it growing? It's, pronounce this for me, Greek speakers. Peleao. Peleao. The word is first used in 8.13. By the way, this, these two words are hardly ever used in the apostolic scriptures. And they're hardly ever used, the root is, but the, the actual uh, grammar is never used in the Septuagint at all. So we have to learn these words by the context being used in the few places that we have. Which, by the way, when, you, when scripture does that, it only gives you a few places, sit up and pay attention. It means that wherever it's using it, you're supposed to really begin to understand what it means. Right then. You don't have to look them all up because there's only two. Well, you have to look them all up. There's only two, though, so sit up. It can be, uh, well, I guess it's good at that if you've got uh, semantic domains. Yeah. So you can look at, at how this word was used in extra biblical text at that same time. That's right. And you know, you normally get a, a better handle on it. Sure, the word first was made. By the way, that's perfect tense. Look at 8.13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. That's perfect tense. What it means is it has, was done in the past and it was a completed action. In other words, when the first was made, it was, quote, obsolete. You know, planned obsolescence? No, no, this is not planned obsolescence. This is like the moment that it was created it was obsolete. Maybe that word obsolete doesn't mean obsolete. Right? Maybe uh, palao, palaeo, palaeo, palaio. <laughs> palaio. Yeah, it's like, uh-oh. It's, like, it's got a shema in it. That's it. I'm going to put the shema in it. <laughs> okay. Look at Hebrews 1, 10. Because it's going to give us, it's going to give us the hint. Yes, it is. Hebrews 1, 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will grow old like a garment. That's it. They will grow old. That's the word. What is, what is the old or the first covenant here being compared to? The heavens and the earth. Ooh, I've heard this one before now. This one I've heard before. Didn't Yeshua say something like that about the Torah? Not a covenant. The Torah? Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? Well, but more importantly, I've heard this phrase actually in the apostolics, actually in the Hebrew scriptures a lot. Deuteronomy 29.4. Now, this is a variation of the Greek and the Septuagint. It's not the same word, but it's from the root. 29.4. Hebrews 29.4 says... Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear to this very day. It's 9.29.5. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. And your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Wearing out. That's what the word means here. Okay? Well, okay. So, it's, so the old covenant is wearing out. Hasn't worn out yet, but it's wearing out. It's got holes in it, you know. Doesn't quite work yet. Doesn't quite work anymore. That's not what it means either. Go to uh, Psalms 102. Because the very phrase used in Hebrews is used in Psalms 102. And Isaiah 51. Both. The same way. Exactly the same way. Is that what Peter was doing when he talked about Yes, he was. Peter in Second Peter was doing exactly the same thing. Psalms 102, verse 26 says... They, speaking of the earth and the heavens, they will perish, but you will remain. They grow old like a garment. Same root Greek, same root of the Greek word there. Okay, same same word being used. They will grow old like a garment. Isaiah fifty one does the same thing. The heaven, the earth and the heavens wear out. So, let's rephrase that now. Hebrews eight. 13. In that he says a new covenant, he made. He made it when he first made it. He made it so that it would, in fact, be temporal, like the earth and the heavens. Now, what is being or becoming worn out or temporal? It's currently temporal and growing old is ready to vanish away. There's the next one. Vanish away. Disappear, right? To be disappeared. It's the same. It's from the same thing we get the word phantom from. To be visit or to be uh, 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 visible, as it were. Afanimos, afanimos, to not see. <laughs> Say it for me. Afanismos. Well, there you go. I said it right. <laughs> to not see, to be hidden. It'll be hidden. It's not saying it's gonna. Well, you won't have to ever look at this thing again. It's gonna be hidden. Are the hidden things bad things? What have we learned so far about shadows? They're the way we see hidden things, right? Well, this will be hidden. This old covenant is going to be hidden. This is not saying the first, or what some might call the old, is obsolete. It is not saying that it has been annulled or abolished. It could have just said those words very easily, and it didn't. It pertains to the temporal, and it will be hidden at some time in the future. What he's trying to do. And, and if you follow that with the ideas carried out in, in chapter 9 of Hebrews, you see that's precisely his point. He's talking about visible and invisible parts of the tabernacle. What's seen and what is not seen. And relates it to the relationship between the spiritual domain and the physical domain. 
And he does the same thing. He's already done the same thing with the discussion of the covenant. There is something that is temporal. He's speaking of something different, new. Okay? It's not temporal. Galatians 3.15 says... Brother, I speak in a matter of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. No covenant of God's, much less man's, no covenant of God's annuls a previous covenant. I got a question. When God made a covenant with Abraham, was that a new covenant? Did the covenant of Noah go away? That's it. I'm sorry. All bets are off. Floods are now allowed. No more rainbow. No more rainbow. Floods are allowed. Just because he made another covenant? Well, Abraham was a descendant of Noah. So did that annul it? Okay, the covenant with David. Okay, now all bets are off. You know, all those previous covenants no longer apply. That's, it's silly. It's nonsense. It's silly to think that a covenant made by an eternal God replaces a previous covenant. One would think, and I, I think it's impossible, but one would think, if it were true, or if it were possible, God would have given very clear direction to the very people that would have heard that. And he would have done it probably somewhere like Deuteronomy 13, where he said, by the way, if you guys mess up, I'm going to change the rules completely. Instead, in Deuteronomy 13, he said the opposite. If anyone comes and teaches you something different, ignore him. No, I'd better yet stone him. God's covenants do not replace each other. So what about the new covenant? Is it chronological? Is that what it means, old and new? Maybe, maybe. Hebrews 8, 8 through 11 quotes Jeremiah 31. Let's go to Jeremiah 31 and spend a little bit of time there. Not a lot, just a little. It is very sad in my mind that many people can quote or reference Deuteronomy or Jeremiah 31 as, re- as Hebrews has referenced it and yet not know the context of it. This is the only discussion in all of Scripture about in, in its completeness about the New Covenant other than the quote that we read in Hebrews chapter. One would think the New Covenant being so important, people would want to know exactly what it means for them. And yet they have not. They haven't even bothered to look it up. Because if they did, they'd be shocked. And maybe a little disappointed. Or confused. Or very confused. There you go. Maybe not disappointed. Just confused. Let's read Jeremiah 31, 23 through 37. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel just in case you forgot who he is. He's not the God of America. He's not the God of Saudi Arabia. He's not the God of Great Britain. He's the God of Israel. He's king of the universe, and it's all his. But he's the God of Israel. That's the only name with regard to a people other than individuals that he's ever given. They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, a home of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah farmers and those going out with flocks. And I have, For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the 
I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that I, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no more they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one shall die for his own iniquity, every man who eats sour grapes on his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my Torah in their minds and and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. How is he going to do that? Based on what we've studied in the, in the sacrifices, how is he going to forgive their iniquity? And their sin I will remember no more. That's taking away sin, isn't it? Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Apparently, there's a whole lot of people in the reform movement that read verses 31 through 34 and didn't read the preceding verses and the following verses. It's very clear. This is speaking about Judah and Israel. Not a replace Judah and Israel. It's very specific because it says, I will sow in in them in the seed of man and the seed of beast. It's speaking about DNA. You got the DNA? This is literally Israel. Judah and Israel. Who's the new covenant for? Israel and Judah. Period. No additions. Israel and Judah, that's all. How do I have a hope? As Ephesians 2 tells me, I had no hope. There's no way I can be part of Israel. I don't have the DNA. Unless it is by being united with one who has the DNA a Jewish Messiah why he remains Jewish is my only hope otherwise I have no hope I can never be a part of this the new covenant one must be a part of Israel or one is not a part of the new covenant period it's not this covenant that he's going to make is not like the ones that their fathers broke their fathers broke they didn't break it Interesting choice of words. Why doesn't he say not like the ones that you broke? Their fathers broke. When did they break it? Was it the golden calf? Was it maybe all the idolatry that followed after that? When did he say they broke it? When I took them by the hand and lead them to lead them out of Egypt. When was that? I didn't read that part. When did they break it then? 
after those days, he says. After those days. Well, what, that ought to get my attention right a minute. Well, okay, after what days? What days is he speaking of? Well, this Jeremiah wrote this just before the Babylonian captivity, or, part, or possibly during part of the early parts of the Babylonian captivity. So, yeah, it could be any time. Well, 500 years later, Yeshua... Yeshua is born, that's the time. That, that's after those days. Well, let's look, read all those what's going to happen. Torah is going to be in their minds and their hearts to obey it. I'm sorry, but by the second century, the church says, no longer does the Torah need to be in our hearts and minds. We should abandon it. That's confusing. So apparently that was not a fulfillment of the New Covenant. If the New Covenant was in effect in the first century, then somehow in the second century, century it was no longer in effect. Because guess what? It wasn't in their hearts and their minds. How about this? He'll be their God. He'll be, they'll be his people. Who? Israel and Judah? Well, apparently somebody should have told the early church fathers because they cast them all off, saying they were accursed. All of them will know God from the greatest to the least. That has never happened. This is unfulfilled. This is clearly unfulfilled. It's not fulfilled at all except by having glimpses of it. It's having glimpses of it. So can I be a part of the New Covenant? If it hasn't been fulfilled? Or do I have to wait? Is it a dispensational thing? Okay, some ho- hopefully some moment in the future, it'll like, okay, now everybody can be a part of it. Is that how it happens? What inaugurates the New Covenant? What inaugurated the New Covenant? A way where he could forgive their sin and forget their that's right. And it is probably a very good thing to say, the cross. However, when was the cross? Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. So who is a part of the New Covenant? Who is a part of the New Covenant? Was there a moment where, okay, that's it, there's a new way, and you got to join the new way. Okay, I know you were a part of the old way, but now you got to join the new way. Turn in your old card, get your new card. Is that what happened? Is this dispensational thing? This side, that side. This side of the cross, that side of the cross. New way to do it. As we're going to see when we move into Hebrews chapter 11, that's not only absurd, it's actually spoken against. Because everyone listed in Hebrews chapter 11 is considered a hero of the faith and they all preceded all. Were they part of the new covenant? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, uh, all of them will know God. Every time I read that, and we went through it here in the, in the lesson, I immediately think of Romans 11. As Paul is talking about the yeah. Israel. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Paul's looking for a time to get future. Okay. The next time we look at this new covenant is Ezekiel 36 and 37. Now, it doesn't say new covenant, but notice the uncanny resemblance between this and, and uh, Jeremiah 31. Let's start in verse 22 of chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. By the way, if you just think that doesn't include Judah, when you get into 37, you're going to see it's Judah and... That's right. It's going to include Judah and Israel. Thank you, Judah. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I have a, I have a great irony that people who believe that that the that that the covenant, the old covenant, was taken away from, and the relationship was taken away from uh, Israel and given to the, quote, church, because they broke God's laws, that now you can break God's laws. The irony is just profound. In other words, they blew it. 
Boy, those wicked people blew it. But now we don't have to do that stuff anymore. Isn't that a relief? <laughs> it's pretty perverse when you think about it. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Did they profane his name? Absolutely. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Reminds me of Zechariah 8, where it talks about the ten men of the nations will grab the hem of one Jew and say, Take us. Take us with you. You know the Lord. That's when this will happen. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you to your own land. There we have that again. A focus on being in the land as a part of the new covenant. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you with all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. Now, how does that correlate back to Jeremiah 31? He puts his law on their hearts. So how does that relate here? It's like stone and flesh. We see the same idea. The, 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 the Torah being written on tablets of stone, not bad, but now we have a new writing material, the heart. I will put my spirit with you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Okay, so we've been breaking them for a long time, but you'll start doing them again. <laughs> they, not, they, they didn't apply, now they will apply. No, they, they always apply. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver... You know how I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and increase your fields so that you never, never, need never again be, bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your own iniquities and your, own, uh, and your, uh, and your abominations. Go to verse chapter 37. Yeah, go to chapter 37, verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, again Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you to the land of Israel. Again, a relationship to the land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you, sh- then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, for his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them to one another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. This is... Israel and Judah, the houses of Israel and Judah. Then when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is the hand of Eph- in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel with his companions, and will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks in which you write shall be in, the hand be- in your hand before their eyes. Keep reading. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land. Did that ever happen before? After Babylon, that did not happen. It was, it was mere tens of thousands that returned from Babylon. Even in the first century, Jews in Babylon 
There were a lot of them. They never went back. Some did. That's who was living there, but a lot never did. And I will make them one nation and land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king over them. Did that ever happen? That never happened. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever again be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them of all their in, in, from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. That has never happened. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there. They, their children, their children's children, forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. That is the new covenant. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with, with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The best evangelical plan that ever was was God's. And it actually, at the, at the end of the age, everybody knows that he's God because of what he does with Israel. So, all Israel is included in this new covenant. That's like we saw in Jeremiah 31. Taken out of the nations and brought to the land. That's the same as Jeremiah 31. A new heart and a new people. His Torah is going to be written on the hearts. That's like Jeremiah 31. My people, your God. That's Jeremiah 31 as well. They'll be repentant. Same thing. Cleansed of sin. Same thing. Now here's a new one. David will be king over them forever. Of course, we all know this is code word for the house of David or rather a king from the house of David Mashiach this is Messiah you will obey my statutes and judgments that's what we saw in Jeremiah 31 as well a sign this is new what's the sign going to be the sanctuary his tabernacle amongst them forever isn't that ironic when we go to chapter 9 of Hebrews that he's talking about a tabernacle what is that a sign of in both of these passages, which, is, which goes away? Sin or the commandments? Sin goes away. Yeah, something gets abolished. The law of sin and death gets abolished. That's what gets abolished. How can God's righteous standards be abolished? Hey, listen, there is no sin if God's righteous standards are abolished. That'd be an easy way. Hey, why doesn't God just do that? That'd be easier, wouldn't it? Nobody has to die. Just say, that's it. It doesn't apply anymore. Because if that happens, the last bullet point can't. He cannot be in our midst. Exactly. Bingo. You said it. So if God's standards were that way then, or he's strike them dead, then why would it be different now? He's still holy. He's still holy. And his, hol- and his holiness is still defined the same way. Not like us. We are not. Deuteronomy 35-6, through six, as we saw. This is the promise of the new covenant within the Torah itself. It's something yet future. Are we participants? In every regard we are participants. But only insofar as we have been made part of the future house of Israel. The future commonwealth of Israel. We have been united with them. Is that something we experience in, 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 in real life today? If it were so. But it's not. That would be cool. 
We are not a replacement for them. We've been grafted into them. So, first and new, it's the same God, same people. Old and new, if you'd like, up there. First and new. We're comparing and contrasting. The first and the new, it's the same God, and it's the same people. Old covenant, new covenant. Same God, same people. Okay? Participants in the covenant are the same. Everybody agree? First and new, same standards of righteousness. What's different? We'll talk about it in a second, but they're same standards, right? Okay, whatever's right before is still right. Whatever's wrong before is still wrong. Okay? You don't do away with sin, you deal with sin. (laughs) We don't do away with the commandment, that that would do away with sin. We deal with it. How do we deal with it? Understand that the atoning work of Yeshua is diminished far more, in reality, diminished far more by the abolishment of the Torah than any discussion of sacrifices concurrent. Before the law, I did not know sin. That's right. First and new, similar. But there's expanded promises. Specifically expanded promises concerning the land and his dwelling among them. Wow. Not only that, considerably expanded promises in the sense that I'm going to obey you all the time? How great is that? To me, that's like, that's like up there at the top. That's right next to I get to be with you all the time is and I'm not going to disobey you ever. Or want to. Or want to, yeah. <laughs> How about this? Contrast. First and the new. It's a different place to write those statutes. Instead of stone, the writing material is now my heart. What makes the difference? You know, people talk about, you know, i got to get that head knowledge down to my heart, you know. i got the head knowledge, I know all about God, but I need to make it part of my being, make it my heart, you know. It's all kind of a, kind of a silly discussion of, of you know, uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind, of, kind of weird thinking that your heart has any organ uh, capacity to, to, uh, to uh, love or to, or, or to fulfill uh, your desires. It's simply something that moves your blood around. But the idea that you move it from your head to your heart, here, it's, this is better. Move it from stone. Not that stone's bad, but it's external. Move it to where? To the Holy of Holies, where it's internal where it's unseen but lived out. The first versus the new has a different effect, doesn't it? And this is what this is what the writer of Hebrews has been trying to make the point. It has a different effect. Listen, all that stuff made it so you could be with God temporarily. Temporary it did cleanse you. Okay, so you've got a great religious experience. That's great. The problem is what effect did it have long term? Did it cleanse your conscience? No. And you knew it didn't. It reminded you of the sacrament. Yom Kippur reminded you of sin, your own failing, right? It reminded you were not holy, and only He was when you had to when you had to bathe in the mikvah before approaching Him, right? You you were reminded He's holy, I'm not. What's the effect? You are perfectly holy, perfectly obedient. In no regard will you ever be considered unclean. Does that mean that those laws pertaining to uncleanness go away? No, but because you are always clean, will they not be now become invisible? Immaterial? Are they in effect? Yes. But just like the laws of a woman after childbirth do not apply to me now, they are in effect for me. They apply, they, they, they're in effect. And yet I never have to experience them. (laughs) 
Right? Because I'm not a woman. In the same regard, if I'm never unclean, will I need to have a mikvah? If I'm never able to touch a dead body, because there are no dead bodies, will I ever need to worry about being unclean in that regard? No. Has the law been done away with? In no way. It's still in effect. But what... Is it visible? You know, we have all these Nick vote around and nobody's using them. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's not comparison. I mean, I'm thinking of tabernacle imagery. When it says that when the first tabernacle, the first part of the tabernacle, which is symbolic of the first covenant, is in effect, the second one is not seen. That's right. So in a similar effect, as of now, the first is in effect, you don't see all the spiritual fulfillment of That's right. the covenant. Exactly. Obviously, I don't obey him all the time. I don't. He doesn't dwell physically with us. I don't know what it's like. But is that still in effect? Yes, yes it is. But it's just not being experienced, per se, by me in a very real and tangible way. So in the same sense, when things shift at the end of time, then the, old, the first will still be in effect. But it won't be tangible. It's the same. Perceptible. Right. It will be perceptible then. In the same way that the new is not entirely perceptible now. Good job. Good job. First versus new. A perfect king will reign over us. Boy, that's the best news of all. A perfect king. You know? He will, he will always judge rightly. First versus new. His sanctuary in our midst forever. It won't be a pining for. It will be there always. Visible. Understanding the writer of Hebrews not denigrating the covenants of Sinai or anywhere else in Scripture is important. Once we understand that, we begin to, to truthfully answer the burning question the writer is, is answering for those in the first century believer. This is, what the, this is their question. This is their question. It's a good question. What's so great about the new covenant since we have a covenant with God already? That's the question. It may be not the question we ask, it may be something we should ask because the answer is a very good answer and the, and the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand it's infinitely better. Why? Because it's not just for here and now, it's forever. It's a covenant that continues forever. Actually, the old covenant, in that regard, I suppose you could say continues forever. The difference is that this one ensures your participation forever. <laughs> the answer, the new covenant is better. The first is visible now, but one day the new covenant, like the hidden olive holies, will be manifested. And this, this is like what Joshua said. It's like turning a sock inside out. What is now hidden will be visible, and what is now visible will be hidden. Inside out. It should probably be the other way around. I don't know. And it'd be a clean sock, not a dirty sock. The new is inside the first, isn't it? Right there in Deuteronomy, right there in the Tanakh, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, are more details about the new covenant than the New Testament ever mentions. Without being grafted into Israel by Yeshua's work, you cannot be a part of the new covenant. Comments, questions? How ironic that those that want to do away with the old, quote, with the old covenant. It's in there. 
That's right. Well, it, it, what's really interesting to me about about the whole understanding, and I think, and this this is this comes from a discussion I had with somebody recently regarding the authenticity of the apostolic scriptures and how it can become how it can come under attack for very rightful reasons. Uh, crit, uh, 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 textual criticism, right? It, very rightful reasons. You know, it can come under attack. And yet, the very strengths of it and its authenticity is borne out by its, its it, by its being tied back to tied back to the Tanakh. And if you have systematically removed the Tanakh's foundation for the Apostolic Scriptures, I believe with all my heart the Apostolic Scriptures cannot stand on their own. They cannot. They are worthless without the Tanakh. They're worthless. And the reason why they are is for the very reason why the writers continue to quote from it. Why Yeshua himself he just said he didn't come to do away with the, uh, with the Torah and uh, the prophets. And the reason why is because they are those things which speak of him. Without it, just like Paul, if you don't handle the Tanakh correctly, you will not handle Paul correctly. And just like, just like Yeshua spoke of the Pharisees, if you do not believe Moses, you will not believe me. This is a very sad thing if we consider Christianity at large, how they could possibly, how we could possibly stu- believe that we could disregard Moses and not believe him and still believe Yeshua. It's an impossibility. If you do not believe Moses, you will not believe me. In the same time, getting back to the authenticity of the scriptures, um, with the absolute scriptures, sometimes it's those confusing passages that throw us to loose. But digging into Hebrews this week and thinking and shifting the paradigm that you're thinking in and beginning to think of the old as not being done away with the crucifixion, but the old simply becoming not seen in the new heaven and new earth, that unlocks unbelievable capacity within the passages of Hebrews to be understood and to make sense without having to create and come up with theologies to answer questions that you have left over. Replacement theology is, 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 is a profound wickedness. Dispensational theology is a, an attempt to somehow answer the difficult questions. It's not best. It's superior to replacement theology. But it's still a desire to try, somehow answer the question, and the question is actually a very bad question, but at least they've been trying to be fair about it. And the question is, how come we don't do those Jewish things? And they've tried to come up with an answer, honestly. Uh, the problem is the question was wrong and they should have just thrown it out from the beginning <laughs> if they had they might have actually discovered and it, it's, a, it's a rather late theology and it, in, in reality it's a, it's a desire to try and, and undo the damage that replacement theology did but they didn't go far enough and by creating dispensations they didn't go far enough and the, and the distance they had to go was this that we don't have to make excuses for difficulties. D- difficulties should be dealt with and should be asked. But one thing's for sure: the, the apostolic scriptures are constantly referencing the Tanakh for a reason. And if we get our source, our sole source of information about our faith from the apostolic scriptures, not to denigrate them in any way, they're 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 precious to us. But if that's our sole source of information about our faith, then we will have a twisted view as. Peter says, happens. And you will end up with a, a people of faith that have a faith that is shallow and confusing and without God. 
just don't understand. Which, which, that's right. Which reminds me of Paul's instructions to Timothy without love. Mm-hmm. And because the basis of love, we understand, is a love for the Lord our God and a love for each other. That's right. Which is, I mean. It, and he pointed him right back to the scriptures he was raised with. That's right. Which is the final. Good, good. Any final comments before we close? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave to us the old covenant, the first. It was with an awesome power that you delivered it. And Father, we know that each of us have broken it in our own way. And Father, we know that it is with an awesome power of Yeshua's own atoning work that we have been grafted into the new covenant. And Father, what an awesome thing it is to know that you have given it to us not to uh, simply negate sin, but to deal with it. And that we have an assurance, not only that we are in the Beloved, but that we will obey you forever, being found in the New Covenant. And Father, we long for that day, for the complete fulfillment of that New Covenant. Father, we thank you that we are first fruits. We are the first to come. That we are being given just a taste of it. And Father, we long for its full fulfillment. And we long for the day when Yeshua will reign as King over us forever. And we pray in His name. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Vechai olam nata betochenu Baruch atah Adonai Noten haTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God the King of the universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai Giver of the Torah